So they take all these measurements on your foot and then they use a 3D printer to actually create a pair of shoes for your feet. I mean, a, a custom pair of shoes, that's something that like literally only the top end pros used to get. Or it, it used to be like, we can print the name Patrick on your yeah. shoes. Like, yeah. That was your custom, yeah. but it's the exact right. same model. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, we can make them blue or gray. <laughs> yeah, it, it's phenomenal to see. And welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darren. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. Patrick, you know, it's funny. We were talking about it right before the podcast started that that we just had, we talked about it on the last time you were here, that, that, that 2019 has not been a standard, hey, let's meet for a run and then we'll go record a podcast afterwards. So... Whenever we like say the intros here, I always get a little bit like you know fired up. I'm like, "Hey, Patrick's back! It's That's the podcast." Right. It's like it's like this mix of nostalgia and mm-hmm. excitement and just all sorts of things. So so glad to hear, man. Yeah, and part of the reason is we're on different race schedules for the yeah. first time in a while. Oh, so yeah. and what we and we will continue to be until well until the winter. You're doing? Are you doing Boston next year? I am doing Boston next right, year. Very yes. good. I am too. So we'll be back totally on the same schedule then. That's exciting. But that actually kind of transitioned just nicely. I haven't had a chance to catch up with you much since you ran your Flying Pig Marathon here a few weeks ago. That's right. I'm drinking uh, tea out of my Cincinnati Flying Pig Marathon cup right now, as a matter of fact. So there you go. Uh, yeah, man, it was a good race. I was, yeah. uh, I, was, I was happy with it. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, how does it feel to peer in the marathon as an old man? I mean, as a forty-three-year-old. I'm sorry, forty-four-year-old. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I, so so flying pig. I actually actually snuck in a PR, which was a very pleasant surprise. I, uh, my PR, and those of you who are really diligent podcast listeners would know, my PR actually dates back to the 1996 Marine Corps Marathon, um, and I was training for a marathon during that time but I wasn't training particularly well and it was the fall after I had been a collegiate runner it was my first fall out of college and so I was still in pretty good shape I was still I guess you could say I was still in the prime of my running career for lack of a better way of saying it and and I was living in Washington DC and so I signed up for the Marine Corps Marathon just as a way of running the 26.2 mile distance before I was going to race 26.2 miles at some other marathon right Mm -hmm. Um, and I got swept up in, I didn't taper for it or anything like that, but got swept up in, in the excitement of the race and ended up running 2.36.28. Okay. Um, and never ended up running. And that's that, like what? Is that right at six flat? It's, yeah, it's just, just under six flat pace, right? So yeah, and actually the way it went down is that I was running and I felt great and the first mile was like just over six minute pace and the second was just over six minute pace and the third one was just under six minute pace. And I was like, all right, I'll just run the whole thing at six minute pace. Mm-hmm. That, that was my thought process, right? Um, and it got pretty hard there in the last 10K um, uh, in part because I was, you know, 22 years old and didn't have as much endurance as I have now, certainly. Um but but ended up running 236 and and I was I was fine with it but I just figured okay well this is this is okay it's my first ever marathon yeah. I'm going to run 224 223 220 something like that in a few months and that'll be you know my big marathon that never happened Mm-hmm. Um, I got distracted by other things. I had a hard time transitioning into the world of work and, and all that stuff. And so, so then I became a cyclist. Then I became a triathlete. And then I only went back to running marathons, you know, as a master's runner. And so 
I look back on my PRs and I'm like, well, my, my 5k PR is this time. And that's pretty good. I'm proud of that. My 10 mile PR, my 10 K PR, those are good times. And then I, I've always had this marathon PR that just kind of was out of line. And mm-hmm. I didn't much like because, <laughs> right. because, because it was basically a race that just kind of jumped in and, and, and it just felt really weird. So, so yeah, I, uh, and it's I interesting too because it's funny because an adult runner people ask you well how fast can you run a marathon they ask right. you how fast can you run a mile and how yeah. fast can you run a marathon which right. by the way there's a big difference between right. the two um so then i know what you mean where y'all had to kind of almost mumble under your breath like what, right. what that pr was right but you almost had a similar you know approach as you know you telling your story about oh well i'll i'll pr later down the road and it never mm. quite happened yeah. it's almost like dan marino who went to the super bowl his rookie year <laughs> Lost to the 49ers and said, oh, I'll be back. No worries. And then played 20 more years and never made it back oh, again. Oh, jeez. Yeah, um, good, yeah good, good, good parallel. Yeah, so so for me, what it was is that people would say, so people would say to me, oh, you're a marathoner. Um, uh, what's your marathon PR? And and somehow throughout the course of the conversation, I would say, well, I never ma- ran a marathon when I was in my prime. Mm-hmm. I would say I never, I never raced a marathon when I was in my prime. Right. They'd say, well, what's your PR? And I'd say, I would say it's 236.28. And they'd be, where'd you run that? And I'd say, well, it was Marine Corps Marathon 1996. I thought you said you never ran a marathon in your prime. Right, now, right. that conversation, seriously, probably only happened once ever. Right. <laughs> but, right. but I had my, but it bothered me. <laughs> I had it in my own head, you know. And hey. so, so, so now I can say, I never raced a marathon in my prime. What's your PR? Well, it's 236.15 at the Flying Pig Marathon. I ran it when I was 44 years old. <laughs> Isn't that, you bring up a good point, too. It's funny, too. I'll get in my own head about, oh, I ran slow today or something like mm. that. You know, you, you, like if, if you don't quite run what you want to, no one else cares. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and I don't mean that disparagingly. What I mean is it's funny how most people are proud of us and the effort we put in on a daily basis mm-hmm. more so than they are our PRs. Yeah. We in the running community get caught up in PRs because that's kind of what we do. That's our community. That's our little fishbowl, so to yeah. speak. But it is interesting when you talk to people who maybe are not as invested in running, mm-hmm. whether they're just casual joggers or they just have never run at all. Mm-hmm. They're much, they're not nearly as focused on the PR oh, yeah. as we are, as much as they're focused on this person likes to run, they enjoy it, they've kind of mastered this part of their life in a way that they, they admire. But, yeah, it's funny, too. Um, and it, this has been interesting. And I was talking to my wife about this recently. I think you and I talked about it as well, mm-hmm. that, that um, people will will – People have responded more positively to this race for me um, uh, than they have other races in the past. Yeah. Um, and and that's not to say that people are not supportive of me. I I, I feel hugely supported as a runner. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the outpouring of support that people have always given me as an athlete, um, you know, inside my family, Strava followers, folks in our real running circle, all that sort of thing. Uh, it's incredible. It's very supportive, and I always really really appreciate that. And I feel that when I run and when I train and when I race. Um, but it's been particularly high in the aftermath of this race. And I, and it's because I said, Hey, I PR'd and everybody speaks that language. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, before it's like, okay, George ran two thirty seven oh five in Philadelphia. Is that a good race for him? I don't know. It was be, I don't, I don't, okay. Hey, good race, George. Congratulations on the finish. Do you know what I mean? Right. Whereas this one, I say, I PR'd. Everybody's like, Good race, right? <laughs> Congratulations, way to go, PR. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like everybody knows what that means, um, and that's been that's been kind of cool too. Yeah. So, um, the race, by the way, the Flying Pig Marathon, highly recommended. 
Good. Good size. Um, Fantastic the, metal, by the way. So cool metal with two-sided metal with the front of the pig on the on one side and the back of the pig on the other side. Um, good festival of races that entire weekend. My mm-hmm. sons, you know, as I had talked about, I think on here, uh, did the the 26th mile where they did 25 miles over the course of the of about two months, uh, and then they did the last mile of the course, the 26th mile of the course, and so they ran a marathon, albeit you know over the course of two months. They did it incrementally, is what it said, and they they. Well, done and they 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 kept track of all their mileage in their hog log um the flying pig marathon leans into their theme more than anything you've ever seen right um so they have does it beat the disney star wars like theme you know that's a good question having having done them both over the course of the last two months they're comparable Mm -hmm. which you know if you say oh yeah they're they're comparable to disney in terms of theming that's that's pretty impressive Right, Disney's like one of the number one right. top advertising <laughs> right. companies, in and the they world. theme everything. Right, um, but yeah, it 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 definitely the theming definitely feels more authentic. Um, it definitely feels more organic. It feels less produced as well, um, which is good. Um, but you would run through neighborhoods, and you know the fans all lean into the theme. You know, and they are dressed up as pigs, and and they have balloon, you know, pink balloons in their trees and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so yeah, it was super impressive. Um, Back half of the course from about 16 to the finish, not a lot of fans on that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of volunteers, a lot of aid stations who were great. Um, yeah. Not a lot of fans fans there. Um, and so if you are planning to run it one day, be prepared for that. Um, but the course um, is great too. Uh, you've heard me say many times that, that I feel like in order for a course to be great, it has to feel like where you are where you are. Mm-hmm. This feels like Cincinnati. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, the whole race opens in downtown Cincinnati and you run across the bridges into northern Kentucky and then you run back across the bridges back into Ohio. And 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 then you go through all these like little Midwestern towns um, or little Midwestern neighborhoods. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and it's super cool. Cincinnati, for folks who've never been, it's almost it, I mean, it really is. A, is it's a town of or it's a city of town squares. Yeah. Okay. So it's a very walkable mm-hmm. city because it, I mean, it's an old school German town. Where you just, it really is just a collection of town squares. And they almost just drew a big circle and say, all right, we're going to call all these town squares Cincinnati. Okay, yeah. So it's, it, to your point, it, it probably offers a lot of different neat opportunities to run through different neighborhoods mm-hmm. and see all the different, you know, spots. Like I think Hyde Park is one of the big ones. Um, so it, it's, it's imminently runnable for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's hilly. Yeah. There was a, you know, I, I had seen the profile and there was a big hill from mile five to seven. I was like, oh, I'm from Atlanta. That's probably not all that big. No, it's legit. Um, the back half of it from from 13.1 to the finish, it's a net downhill. Um, it's about 200 feet net downhill. And it's a slight, some slight uphills. Um, but, you know, it, it ended up giving me a pretty solid negative split mm-hmm. um, as a result of that. Um, and then I've joked with you, my, my fastest mile of 2019 was my last mile of this race. So got to be happy with that, right? That's, that's incredible. I mean, and the, all and, the miles you've run this year yeah. in 2019, the fastest mile is at the end of a marathon. Right on. And, and what makes it even better is that, that they had a special awards category uh, for, in each age group, they give an award for whoever ran the fastest last mile of the race. It's called the Charmin Dash to the Finish Line. I get a special award for that, too. I got the email about it the other day, so that's fun, too. Um, but yeah, man, it's good to have a, it's, it's, it's always nice to have a, a good race and, and it was fun and my family was there and, and, um, got to see them a lot and it was, it was great. So nothing but good things to say about the flying pig marathon. Good. Now I feel like I learn something every marathon I run, mm-hmm. 
Was there any kind of lessons you learned or that any key takeaways you had from this particular race? So it's, I'm still thinking about it. Um, I definitely approached this one with the same kind of goofiness, hype up the crowd type thing um, that that I, I've done in my last couple of big races that, that were successful for me. Um, and, and clearly that's the way to go for me. Um, I, I would say, I would say there's two takeaways, one small one, one, one big one, and I'm still working on the big one. The small one is kind of part of that. Always make sure you stick to your lessons and always make sure that you do what you know is right. Um, one of my personal rules is as soon as I get onto a race site, I go ahead and use the bathroom mm-hmm. before the lines get long and before I get too close to, to, to the starting and all that sort of thing. And I didn't do that this time and I paid for it. <laughs> I was literally standing in the line in the corral for the bathroom as they are singing the national anthem and as they are trying to count down to the race. I mean, I'm trying to get into the bathroom. Um, and That's I get, not a good feeling. Yeah, no. And I get I'm out. I'm getting anxious just listening to the right? story. I jump out about 10 seconds before the start and start dashing, you know, dodging people through the crowd. Um, and the, the, the gun fires um, and I'm in the middle of the corral. I'm not on the front. Mm-hmm. Um, and And... I finished fifth overall, so, I mean, I should have been at the front, right? Um, and it took me about 16 or 17 seconds to get across the starting line. Um, and so that meant that the opening of it was kind of like, you know, running in a corral at the PC Road Race. I mean, it was super crowded. I'm jumping up on the sidewalks and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got this kind of adrenaline spike from that and such that my second mile was my second fastest mile of the whole race but outside and it was the fastest mile until that last mile right um, and I really had to consciously say you need to settle down mm-hmm. like like you're gonna wreck your race because you get this adrenaline spike at the beginning yeah um, and so so I'm proud of the fact that I was able to kind of rein it in there um, but but yeah that's the, that's a small takeaway is you know those lessons those practices I do in those smaller races yeah. that I've honed over the course of years and years you needed you need to stick to them <laughs> like right. there's a reason why those things work and why, why I do those things um, um, so yeah I should have gone to the bathroom as soon as I got on the site the uh, the the bigger takeaway is around the fact that that 530 mile was the fastest mile that I've done all year mm-hmm. and I need to think a little bit about more about my training and the training I did for this I ran uh, I, I kind of jogged my way through a 50k race Mm-hmm. I did a 10 by 5k race. Um, and those are several weeks out. They were not, you know, right before it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of very short under a mile at 5k pace or better, uh, workouts. Um, but I didn't do any 5k or 10k races. Um, now I did, I've done a lot of those in my history. I did a whole bunch of them this time last year, but I kind of need to think about the way that all the parts came together yeah. in this particular race. Um, yeah, that's interesting because I mean, to your point, I mean, you really didn't even do like a four by mile at five k or anything like no, that. No, I planned to, but I didn't, and and <laughs> I, I mean, did and I did a lot of hard stuff on the bike, mind you, and so I did okay. a lot of five k k effort and and better on the bike. Okay, but I just never did it on the run. Interesting, and but then at the same token, you know, as we talked about before on this podcast. I mean, your your race is not just a result of what you did that training cycle. Right. It's what you've been doing for the last seven right. years or so. Right. So then you wonder, was it that it's kind of that's been waiting in you, so to speak, or mm-hmm. you you've kind of built up that VO two power, so to speak, right? And then now with the additional endurance, with you know the fifty k, et cetera, mm-hmm. you're able to kind of unleash the dragon, so to speak, at the end. Yeah. Um. I mean, who knows? That's that's what makes this fun. That's what makes yeah. a having a conversation fun about what training works and. 
um, you know, the, the various studies that kind of give us evidence in terms of what we need to do or can do to make ourselves better. In different for sure. Ways. For sure. Yeah. And, and, and that's like I said, I'm still kind of trying to digest that a little bit. Um, I, uh, I, I'm not going to say, and I'm never going to say, oh, well, clearly you don't need to be doing workouts at 5k pace, but I'm not going to say that because I did do those workouts, <laughs> both, both, both on the bike and, and at CrossFit. Um, mm-hmm. but so, so I did do those really short, hard things, but I, I, I just need to go back through and pour over my logs a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I've been very much on hiatus for the past two weeks <laughs> yeah. since the race, you know, kind of, kind of enjoying myself and gaining weight and eating candy. Um, that uh that the easter's done george Your excuse <laughs> not for me man <laughs> i've had easter over the course of the past two weeks All right, kids enough candy <laughs> that's right give it to daddy now yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah no it's funny actually and this is the last thing we'll say about it because we really do need to move on um that that i resolved after the philadelphia marathon which was the saturday before thanksgiving i resolved okay I'm not going to fall off a cliff like I did after the Philadelphia Marathon. After the Philadelphia Marathon, between it being post-marathon and it being the start holiday of the holidays, yeah. I mean, I fell off a cliff. I, I, I lost a lot of fitness. I gained a whole lot of weight. Um, and I think it's – we've talked about the importance of, of restoring and resting, and I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's a bad thing that I did that. It was just too much um, and such that, that I think it was, hard, it was harder to get back than it should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I resolved, all right, I'm not going to do that this time. Um, but yeah, here at the end of this kind of two weeks, I'm like, all right, now it's time to start, you know, start trying to, to, to wind it back up a little bit, but have another race on my calendar. So, so I will look forward to starting to train for that over the course of really the next few days. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. More Kennesaw mountain runs. Right on, right on. Very good. Very good. Well, we're in news and research week. We need to talk about news about people other than the folks that are the hosts of the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so uh, you'll recall, of course, uh, last week um, uh, or two weeks ago when I released the podcast, we were talking about the London Marathon. And I said that, that between the time that we recorded the, the podcast and when we released the podcast over the course of those three or four days, there was a lot of news that hit. And so I ended up talking a little bit about some of that stuff um, in the intro to the podcast that we had two weeks ago. Um, and so I, I want to revisit a couple of those things real quickly here um, as we uh, uh, as we're back together again and we have a little bit more time we've had time to digest that news a little bit as well so are we gonna start with Castor Semenya yeah we should probably start with that one um, because that's obviously the biggest news story in track and field right now and really one of the the biggest news stories in sports in yeah. a while I mean this is this is a story that um, kind of goes beyond beyond the track yeah. And it is, and it's one. It's it's a big cultural story as well. Yes. A lot of my uh, a lot of my colleagues um, at the college had heard this story, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that they don't have anything to do with track and field or endurance sports. Right. Um, you know, I had a I had a rule of thumb. You know, if if my mom knows about a sports story, yeah, it's a big story. Right. Right. Um. And the the Castro Semenya ruling obviously fits in that category where people who aren't generally sports fans have heard about this story and are trying to formulate an opinion and kind of wrap their arms around what happened, what it means, and what their own opinion is even of, 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 of the ruling right. and where, where we should move forward. Um, and, you know, I can tell you a lot of people have reached out to me, whether it be coworkers, friends, et cetera, who, who, who saw the story, you know, on social media or... Or in the New York Times. The New York in Washington Times. Po- I mean, like all the major news outlets covered it. And you just yeah. wanted my opinion because they would say, hey, we know you're a runner. We know you, you enjoy this sport. You know, what did you think? Have you heard of this person before? That kind of a thing. 
Um, so it, so it, it's certainly a, a big topic and, and one that I would say has bigger implications than most stories that we cover, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. on this podcast. You know, we, we tend to take a very kind of low key, it's you and I kind of, sh- you know, shooting it together when we share research, but we're also kind of just, you know, giving our opinion and, and commentary about, you know, um, a bit more lighthearted topics. But, but this is one that, that, that certainly is, um, has big ramifications. Yeah. So if you want to start off and just kind of recap what exactly happened in the, in the ruling. Yeah, so, so Kazer Semenya, you'll recall, is uh, the most dominant 800-meter runner, um, the most dominant women, woman 800-meter runner over the course of the past 10 years or so. She's won a couple of Olympic medals. Um, she's run some of the fastest times of all time. Um, but she has what's called hyperandrogenism, um, and that means that she has elevated testosterone levels. Um, and because of that, she's been subjected to a lot of uh, criticism and scrutiny um, uh, that other athletes haven't had to, to deal with. Um, and specifically, it's been around whether she is a woman, um, whether, in fact, she should be competing against other women. Um, and the IAAF last year instituted rules where they said that, that any women who have elevated testosterone levels whether those testosterone levels are, are um, naturally elevated or not, have to take drugs, have to chemically alter their testosterone levels, have to lower their testosterone levels um, under a particular threshold. Um, and so Castor Semenya, in order to, to continue to compete um, at the event, the 800-meter event that she's always competed in, um, has to now chemically alter her, her natural testosterone levels. Um, She's left with with three choices. She can either take the drugs, um, and the drugs evidently have some potentially very ugly side effects. Okay. Um, and and so she's already said, hell no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, she can run longer races, um, and so the the rules right now only apply from the eighteen the eight hundred meters to the fifteen hundred meters, um, which or she can run shorter races. She can run the four hundred, the two hundred. Um, which a lot of people have pointed to, including me, and said, you know, that feels just like they're targeting her. Um, um, and so she can compete in longer races, or she can compete in the men's category, um, where she's super fast, but she's basically as fast as as a really good high school boy mm-hmm. um, in the United States. And so she she would not be able to compete at the world level against men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so um, she's kind of left without a whole lot of options here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she ran one last race a couple of weeks ago um, at the Diamond League meet in Doha. Ran 154, um, and which was I want to say the her third fastest time of all time, the twelfth fastest 800 of all time, um, and uh, uh, kind of went out in a blaze of glory here. But that might be the last time we see her race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the court of arbitration for sport um, uh, upheld the IAAF's ruling and and ruled against Casper Semenya and said that um, it was within their rights and responsibilities to uh, protect the integrity of, of the female category uh, by requiring testosterone limits there. So yeah, that's kind of the recap. Yeah. Um, I mean, thoughts on it? I have a couple of thoughts on it. Yeah, and we'll, we'll kind of go back and forth. Um, yeah. So first of all, I think the first thing that should be said is um, Castor Semenya herself has really been put in a place to receive a lot of scrutiny. Oh yeah. And she has always reacted with the utmost respect and dignity yeah. to all of her fellow athletes, coaches, the sport of track and field, et cetera. And so I think that should f- f- be the first thing that we say just as commentators of this situation, yeah. 
that she herself has been put in a situation that she didn't be asked to be put in. No. And she has received a level of scrutiny that really is hard for me to imagine. Yeah, me too, obviously. And, and we're privileged that we haven't had to imagine that. Right. And so I think anyone who, who looks at this and wants to formulate an opinion and wants to try to wrap their arms around the situation, first we need to accept that, you know, Castro Semenya, the individual person, she has been put in a situation that most of us were probably never asked to be put in. Yeah. She didn't ask to be put in this situation. Yeah. And she's had this kind of thrust onto her, and she has reacted with the utmost amount of dignity and respect. Right. And I think that should be commended. I, I really do. I, I don't yeah. want to lose the individual person mm-hmm. in this policy debate. She, she's getting a lot of love, personally, which is something that I appreciate. And so, so almost everything I've read talks about the grace with which she has handled this really, really ugly situation over the course of the past 10 years. Um, and so, and I, I think that's important. I do think that. Now, that being said, I think that she should be getting a lot of love and people should be commending her for her grace. But something about that feels empty. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that people are like, Cassius Mania, man, she's really been graceful about this whole thing. Well, your career's over. Something about that feels empty to me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing you. Right. Because I do, I do think it's important that we say we say that she has been incredibly graceful and she, she has um, been a model of, of humility um, despite the fact she's endured so much criticism, invasion of privacy, hatred, just ugliness, um, you know, derisive jokes. I mean, people have said things about her publicly right. um, that, that are horrible. Yeah. Um, and, and she's taken it all in stride. Um, and um, that's incredible. But at the same time... Um, I don't know. That rings a little hollow for me. If that makes well, I sense. think. Well, or another way to put it is the conversation doesn't end there. Yeah, that's how you you almost want to start the conversation and say first things first, but mm-hmm. then that doesn't cover up everything, so yeah. to speak. That doesn't. Yeah. The, the, that's not the end of the sentence. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was the first thing I wanted to say. For sure. And the second thing I think is, right now, I don't know if we have a right answer. No, I agree with you on that. And that's not something we're used to thinking about because we want to find. Should I go left? Should I go right? Should I do this? Should I do that? In mm-hmm. or out? Right now, we just don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, originally, you know, I, I don't know exactly how old track and field is, but it's over 100 years old. And we originally... Oh, it's thousands of years old. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, if you really want to go back to, you know, yeah. like the, the Greeks. original Olympics. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, and they originally divide up, all right, we're going to have men do, you know, here, women run this race, men run this race. And we just thought sex was binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember if it's sex or gender. I always get those two confused. But um, we, we didn't have a real binary approach to gender as well. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but keep going. Yeah. And now we're finding more and more that's simply not the case. Right. And the good news is, as we continue to learn that it's not a binary proposition, we're gaining greater awareness. The problem is with greater awareness comes less certainty. Right. And that's where it starts to get tricky. And we're very much in that murky stage where we're trying to figure out where do we draw the line? Right. Do we want to draw a line? Right. You know, that kind of a thing. How many lines do we even want to draw? You know, I, right. um, someone brought up earlier that maybe we need to treat, um, you know, sex and gender the same way we do, like, with, with Paralympics, where we say um, it's not just a binary yes or no, but you almost have to divide up into a few different sections, you know, yeah. male, female, intersex, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I want to get your thoughts because I've been... 
no, I made two no. big points. I want to I hear yeah. your reaction. Well, so, I mean, I, I think so, to pick up directly on what you talked about, I don't think that any of us are real happy with this whole situation. And I think that that's kind of, um, that's one thing that sort of stood out to me, is that the, even a lot of the people that were very much in favor of the IAAF and very much effectively against Castro Semenya, um, and I think that's the reason why some of these these uh, real platitudes toward her, towards her are kind of ringing hollow for me right now, is because people have been kind of against her all along, and now that now that her career is done, everybody's like, oh, hey, congrats, you know, you, right. you're, you're really graceful. Thanks, thanks for not fighting us too much on this. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And I do think she, she she needs to be praised for her grace, but there's something about being like, hey, I really appreciate your being not a sore loser. That just feels wrong to me. Yeah. Um, so, and I can't quite articulate. But anyway. But yeah, nobody really likes the outcome. And I think that, that in the wake of this, everybody kind of realized that, okay, this is where we, are, where we are right now, but we just haven't quite figured it out. A couple quotations on that regard. Uh, there's a pro runner named Eleanor Fulton uh, who ran at the, the University of Washington, and she's a pro now. I think she runs for Skechers, uh, but she's a miler. Uh, and she tweeted something I thought that was good. She said, before today, and she tweeted this on the day, that the release, the, the CAS uh, Court for Arbitration Sport decision was released. She said, Before today, I deeply felt it was unfair for athletes with abnormally elevated testosterone to compete against biologically typical female athletes. However, coming out of today, this whole decision feels icky to me. It feels a little bit like a humanity fail. I don't feel like we, as humans, will look back on this issue and feel like we're on the right side of history with mandated no- uh, hormonal manipulation, unquote. Um, and, and I think that that, that kind of captures it, you know. Um, you know, you have Amy Burfoot, who's the the writer for for Runner's World. I read his book actually a few months ago, but um, he won the Boston Marathon in 1968. He said uh, in an article on Let's Run.com, he said, "I felt sad when I learned that the IAAF had quote won. Uh, I felt no joy at all. I didn't dance, pump a fist, or fill the room with all right cheers." At first, I wasn't sure why. I would have been angered by an opposite decision. I would have regarded it as another science-denying event. On the day, on the day's long flight to Los Angeles for a family get-together, I had time to mull over the dullness, the heaviness I felt. Why? The words eventually came to me in a flash. None of us ever imagined and certainly never hoped for a day when a great athlete would be asked to alter her natural physiology to continue competing. There is no cause here for celebration. There is no reason to say more. Unquote. Mm-hmm. And I think he's right. I mean, like, and to your point... Like this is not, I, I don't. It's it's just it's frustrating because it's so imperfect. Um, uh, in many ways, we're we're trying to choose the the best of undesirable outcomes. Mm-hmm. There's there's no. I, I don't feel there's any desirable outcome or, yeah. or decision that anybody has really proposed. Yeah. And I think that's been the overall um, feeling that many people in the running community have is that they don't even know what side they're rooting for. Right. Like I even hate the word to use the word side because all of us, I think, want to. Um, continue to grow this sport and continue to um, encourage people to be the best version of themselves. Yeah. So then when a, a solution is, you know, testosterone suppression or a suppression right. of... The best version of yourself is the person you naturally are not. Um, <laughs> that just doesn't feel yeah. quite right. Um, I agree. In some ways, it kind of feels like we're, we're trying to put um, a round peg in a square hole. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and and I think that... that We've we've always had kind of a square peg, or at least when 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 the hole was made, the peg was square still. And we're starting to realize now that oh wait, this peg is round, and so it doesn't really entirely fit anymore. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I'm I'm really overstretching this metaphor here, but but kind of to your point and what you just said, we're starting to realize that this binary division, certainly with this binary division of gender, 
um, which we'll talk more about here in just a minute, but the binary division of sex doesn't necessarily quite work. Um, that to say, okay, we're going to have, you know, only a female category and only a male category. Well, what about folks that, that like Castor Semenya kind of fit somewhere in the middle? Are you going to put her in her own category and have her only compete against people that, that, that are also intersex? I mean, maybe that's where we should go, but I'm, I'm just not sure. Um, and I don't think any of us are totally sure right now. Um, because I think that's a problematic solution as well. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, may, maybe this is one of those things that when we get it figured out in 2025, we'll look back on 2019 and be like, wow, how are we so stupid? Why didn't we miss this completely self-evident uh, solution that works for everybody? But I don't know what that solution is right now. Right. And I haven't read anybody else who knows what that solution is either, by the way. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I don't. I just don't know. Um, and by the way, this is this is something. And and maybe we'll revisit this again over the course of the next several months because this is something that I've actually resolved that I'm going to start researching more in my other life um, as a professor um, because I do think this has ramifications. Um, this idea of an, an a decreasingly binary world, um, a decreasingly binary understanding of the world, mm-hmm. operating inside a world that has been set up in a binary fashion. Mm-hmm. And that's true for both gender and for sex. Yeah. Um, and so, so how does that actually work? Um, and, and it has ramifications, obviously, for, for sports, but it has ramifications in lots of other things as well, you know. Um, and it filters all the way on down. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Castor Semenya decision was so significant is because if at the highest level of sport, this is a distinction that you're making, that filters all the way down to literally the youth sports that, that you know, that, that you coach. It filters out into the Special Olympics. I mean, you know, it's, it filters out in every direction. Uh, I, I would say, too, it, it expand. the reason this is such a big story to people outside of track and field and outside of athletics is then it starts to, to ask, you start the conversation of, well, what is gender and sex and what does, you know, male versus female mean in the workplace mm-hmm. and the right. different roles we play, right. you know, in the home. Right. Um, I mean, that's, that's, way far down the line but at the same time i think it strikes a chord because i think that's a bigger conversation we're having as changing gender norms um continue as each generation comes up and yeah gains power um you know greater economic and and political power yeah and you know so so and that that makes me think of 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 two more things and it segues into to one of the other things i want to say um uh first is is to say that I feel like the the transgender debate, which has been going on ever since Caitlyn Jenner punted that ball way down the field about three or four years ago. Right. Right. I mean, that was a conversation in the United States that we were not quite ready for. And then Caitlyn Jenner comes along and appears on the cover of Vanity Fair, and it's like, holy crap, we got to talk about this now. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so um, it's kind of gotten gummed up with the transgender debate, um, and and I think that we are having a hard time saying, okay. There's intersex and there's transgender. Um, and certainly the, the intersex issue has ramifications for the transgender world um, and for the transgender issue, but they're two separate issues. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have looked at Castor Semenya and been like, oh, she's a transgender person. She used to be a boy and now she's a girl. And da, 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 da. It's like, no, no that's, that's not ignorant. her situation. That's not what happened with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and frankly, I think some people have been sort of cynical about that and have been trying to fearmonger a little bit with that. Yeah. Um, and, and well, she was raised a boy, and then she decided she wanted to, to, to really run, and so she decided to, decided to pretend to be a girl, which is a mischaracterization of transgenderness, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. but, but it's also just not her situation. Um, it's, it's, she, she's intersex. 
She she has an XY chromosome. She has an internal pair of testicles, but she also presents as a female and has always been raised as a female, and people have always thought that she was a female. That's that's not her situation. She's not transgender. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that that's one thing that's kind of bothered me about it as well, about the whole conversation, is yeah. that, that these these really distinct aspects of it have all gotten sort of mushed up together. Um, and, and, and they need to be parsed a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in order for us to understand them better and, and to ultimately create good policy around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, other thoughts on Castor? Oh, gosh. Um, so many. You know, someone who knows far more about this than, than I certainly do is, is Ross Tucker, and you can mm-hmm. find him on Twitter at, at um, I think it's Sports Science or, or something like that. Science you, of Sport. Science of Sport, that's it. Um, he actually testified against the IAAF's ruling mm-hmm. yeah. in this court case because he said, you know, the, the science that the IAAF is is presenting it doesn't meet the highest standards, right. scientific standards. Right. He, he said, I'm not saying I disagree with, you know, the ruling itself necessarily. I'm not saying, um, he said, I'm not, he, he was presenting it almost the same way we are. We were saying, I don't have a final answer, but I know these science that we're using in terms of the testosterone levels yeah. is not does not live up to the standards that we generally hold ourselves to in Effe- the yeah. community. Yeah, effectively what he was saying, what his argument was, was that um, just because she has naturally elevated testosterone levels, that doesn't mean that she's able to perform at a really, really high level, mm-hmm. such that they say that she is. Um, that that testosterone is taken up by her body and by everybody's bodies in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so you can't necessarily say, oh, well, she has testosterone level of x and that therefore means that she's this much faster right um it's it's bad science to try and apply that across the board um and so so yeah that, that was his argument keep going so and, and, I, and i bring him up and his name up because i think if, if anybody who's listening wants to dive into this issue a bit more and, and wants a someone who's i think is considered a voice of reason so to speak mm-hmm. um he could certainly be one to to look into yeah yeah, science and sport. By the way, it's a good website generally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I like a lot of the stuff on their website, and they and they try and take a much more obviously science based approach to to sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's something that we try to do on this podcast, but but it's difficult because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we've been raised in in sometimes non scientific situations. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. Learning from like yeah. high school coaches, etc. Um, yeah. And then the last thing I guess I want to say on this is I think what I found most problematic about this case in general is that the ruling was made, you know, by IAAF and, and some of these other boards that seem to be almost all male. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think anytime we have... And all European. And all European, yeah. Anytime in history we have a group of men making decisions about women's bodies and how they can be policed or, you know, what policies affect them, I think that's just, that's the wrong formula. Right. We need to have women at the table make you know that have their voice heard and not just at the table like one out of ten i mean they need to have the political power to say to to voice concerns to say i mean we are women here's what we know right. here's what we think based on the science etc um and it also you know it would extend out to intersex athletes as well they need to be on on those boards making yeah. some decisions or at least oh, yeah. having some sway to say here's what we know here's what our experience has been and they need to have a voice. I, I just think whenever we have a group of you know white European males making decisions for everyone else, it it's just not how yeah it, it should be. It's it's true in every situation. 
Um, it's true in policymaking. It's true in marketing. It's true in in in, mm-hmm. uh, in in every field that if you have a non-diverse group of people making decisions that affect a diverse group of people, those decisions are not going to be necessarily the best decisions. Yeah. You, you need to have a, a wide array of voices making decisions. Uh, and that doesn't mean that you get rid of all the white guys. Both you and I are white guys. Um, you don't get rid of all the people who traditionally had power, but it does mean that 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 you set up a situation where people who traditionally have not have power have a voice, they're listened to, and they're empowered. Um, and and yeah, if, if you, you can't have a board made up of largely white European males, none of whom are intersex, um, uh, making these decisions that, that affect a wide array of people across the world, a incredible number of people across the world, mm-hmm. most of whom do not look like them. It should also be noted this ruling does not only affect Castor Semenya, but many of the uh, I mean yeah. many of the women that 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 ran you know finished second and third to her in a lot of these races yeah. are also yeah. affected and will have to yeah. take these suppressants. Yeah. I yeah. mean it should uh, I want to point that out the, too. The she's silver, not the, the silver medalist in 2016 as well. Yeah. Um, she's not the only person affected by yeah. this. Yeah, which is actually and this will be the last point we'll make on it, which is actually something that a lot of people have pointed to as well. That that um, the phenomenon of intersex. Um, uh, the the biological intersex phenomenon, if you will, like how often is somebody born intersex? It's somewhere around about one out of every hundred people. It's about that number. Okay, it's about one percent. Wow. Right. Um, and so, I mean, it's it's which is significant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so one percent. And so, if intersex people are 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 normally represented or are proportionally represented inside of say the 800 meters you would expect about one out of every 100 800 meter runners to be intersex right mm-hmm. um, but in fact the gold medalist from 2016 uh, Semenya, the silver medalist from 2016 and potentially the bronze medalist of 2016 um, all all might have been intersex and so right. so so clearly there, there's an advantage there for for intersex athletes if you look anecdotally at the 2016 olympic 800 meters mm-hmm. right um and that's what a lot of people have pointed to as well um which actually makes me think of something else i wonder if we're opening the door here for like a new a new way of 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 rumor mongering about athletes you know yeah like like it's like over the course of the past 20 years in track and field and in cycling if somebody particularly of course the past 10 years in track and field and cycling if somebody was really really good and very dominant we would say oh that person's probably on drugs right yeah. and there and there'd be there'd be rumors about the person being on drugs i wonder now if if we're going to every time a woman does well we're gonna be like oh i wonder right. if i wonder if she has xy chromosomes i wonder if right. uh, if, if she's actually intersex. you know I, I wonder if that's going to be the new rumor um I don't know. We'll see. Um, and of course, and I should have mentioned this at the outset, the the interesting thing about this, and particularly the thorny thing about this, is that you and I both very much support promoting women's sports and promoting women's achievements, right? Mm-hmm. I like the fact that the Boston Marathon and the London Marathon have separate starts for women. Um, and and they glorify the women's race and they try and try and raise up the women's race, and they give equal prize money to the women and the men. That's a good thing. I like that. Cycling needs to take a cue from big city marathons mm-hmm. um, on that regard. But um, the thing that makes this so thorny is that it's trying to protect the women's category Right. is, is what is driving this. And so it's really well-intentioned 
at the same time. And I agree with the intentions. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's just so hard. <laughs> to get back to our original point, there's, there's no right answer. And yeah. so far, I think no one really feels good about any of the answers yeah. that have been provided. Yeah. And so and so on that note, then, hopefully this won't be the end. Mm-hmm. Hopefully hopefully it's not like the IDLA is going to be like, all right, good, we won it, CAS, done. You know, yeah. ho- hopefully this is this is where we are for now and and we're going to continue to try and work out this 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 issue so we will keep you posted folks and by all means reach out to us george at itlcoaching.com patrick at itlcoaching.com pleasantpodcast at gmail.com let us know what you think as well um all right should we shift to some of our more traditional lighthearted stuff here yes let's do it yeah we'll, we'll make them quick since we talked about caster for a while and we should have um i wanted to hear what you thought about elliot kipchoge's fall plans so and to recap, too, he announced he will not be doing a fall marathon, right. but will be doing almost a, a breaking to part two. Right, And exactly. he would be kind of entering a bit more of a, a sterilized environment to right. try to run a sub-two-hour marathon. Right. And they're going to do it in downtown London. They're going to do it like on a loop in downtown London. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have, just like they did with the Breaking Two Project, they have like a window of days. They have like three or four days in October where like, okay, it's going to be on one of these days, depending on the weather. They're going to pick the, the best weather day. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to do it on a circuit in downtown London. Um, and they're not going to have the pace. It's going to be record eligible. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to have the pacers coming in and out the way the Breaking Two Project did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, And it's sponsored by Enios, the the company that now owns what used to be called Team Sky, um, which has been the most dominant uh, cycling team, Grand Tour cycling team over the course of the past few years. What do you think, man? I love it. <laughs> I am so looking forward to it. So first of all, we've seen him win enough marathons. He doesn't have to all prove right. himself in all terms right. of winning another. He's won, what, 11 of them if you count breaking two? Yeah. Um, in a row, nonetheless. Yeah. yeah. So in, in a way, almost having him win another fall marathon, like what's he going to do, show up to Chicago and win? I mean, I guess that would be cool because, you know, Americans like me, you can go watch him and live right. in person. Right. But other than that, I love that we are almost kind of recognizing that this is a special talent that we're not going to get again. So let's see if we can have him break two. I, I, think, that's his, I, think, I think that's his motivation. Um, yeah. Because as, as we've mentioned before on this podcast – there's not going to be another Ilya Kipchoge for a while. It's, yeah. it's, you know, we talk about this in a lot of sports, you know, running including, where it's sometimes when, when a star athlete retires, you're like, well, who's the next Michael Jordan? Well, sometimes there's not another Michael Jordan coming up, you know, through the ranks. Right. Um, and with him, that is totally the case. And so I would love to see him go after that two-hour, you know, that two-flat marathon. Heck, I'd love to see him drop the two-hour, 25-second marathon time. Mm-hmm. So I'm all for it. I'm pumped. I think it's super exciting. Um, it's it's a bit, you know, hokey, a bit corny, mm-hmm. but who cares? It's sport. It's fun. <laughs> like, he's still running 26.2 miles yeah. in two hours. I yeah. mean, I don't care what kind of drafting he's doing. That's impressive, <laughs> you know. For sure, for sure. Yeah, still running 26.2 miles at sub 440 pace. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, yeah, it's funny. There's a part of me that that it, it's the traditionalist in me that really wants to be like, no, he should, you know, he should keep on running. He, he should only try and do it in a race. There's the other side of me. There's the side of me also that says, says, well, what do I want him to do? And it's totally selfish because, you know, I want him to run New York because I think it'd be cool to watch. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, um, but then there's also the, 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 the side of me that says, okay, who is Elliot Kipchoge and what's he trying to do? Mm-hmm. He clearly, he wants to run fast. 
Mm-hmm. That's his thing. Um, and, you know, we talked about this after Berlin last year. So he ran 201.39 in Berlin. It's like, okay, what's next? Is he going to try and run even faster than 201.39? Or is he going to say, all right, you know what? I'm good with the record and, and, and let's start looking at winning other things or something else like that. And it, this definitively answers that question mm-hmm. that he's still looking to run fast. Mm-hmm. He's still looking to lower that world record. He's still looking for, for times, not for championships. Um, and I'm okay with that. I don't blame him for that. That, right. that his priority is still to say, all right, let's let's see how close we can get to two hours, if not under two hours. Let's make it record eligible, which I like that part of it, by the way. Um, let, let's let's take some of the mistakes that we had from a couple years ago with breaking two. Let's make it record eligible and and let's try it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so yeah, if I if I if I think it from Eli, if if I put myself in Elliot Kipchoge's shoes and try and understand from his point of view, I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I look forward to seeing how it turns out. Same. I mean, I'm just fascinated from kind of a running nerd perspective, too. Yeah. Like, we've seen him win. So, he, like I said, he doesn't have to prove himself anymore. Now it's more about what can a human being do. Yeah. And so now that got to the more interesting kind of nerdy aspect of yeah. the sport where it's like, ooh. They haven't announced all the details just yet. Like, so what are they going to do and what's the course going to be? Mm-hmm. I think it would be cool if they put 10 people in the race. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so the guy who finished second to him at, at London, put that guy in the race too. Yeah. You know, um, and, and put a few more other fast people in the race and, and they don't have to all be Nike sponsored people because it's not Nike show anymore. Right. Um, they probably all will be Nike sponsored people. They don't all have to wear the shoes. They don't, it, it doesn't have to be this, this, um, this sort of marketing blitz type thing. Right. Let's just try and take this very small race and it's almost like making it a track race. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, except that the track is going to be a 5K loop in downtown, um, in downtown London, and and let's put them all on the track and see what they can do. Yeah. You well, and to that point, like Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. He had pacers. Yeah. For the first three laps. Yeah. What if, now his pacers had to run the whole. Mm-hmm. Like the the guy who ran the three lap the third mm-hmm. lap with him had mm-hmm. to run three laps in like 259. Yeah. So that's a little different, but it would be neat too if they had. Different pacers hop in every 5K or 10K. Yeah. But, see, but see, that's the thing they can't. That, that's, yeah. that's the thing that, that made the, the record illegal in, right. in breaking two is that pacers were jumping in and out. And so, so if you have pacers, they have to start with you and they have to pace you and then they have to be gone. Yeah. You know? Um, and so that's the rule. So, so yeah, I, we'll see. We'll see. Um, I, I am interested to see, like I said, what, what sort of innovations they're actually going to make. I think mm-hmm. that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, speaking of shoes, we mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned the Carbon X project. Hoka Oneone has announced that they have a new pair of, of, of uh, shoes with a plate in them called the Carbon X. Um, and so they already have the Carbon Rocket. And the Carbon Rocket's their marathon shoe. The Carbon X kind of falls more into the uh, lightweight trainer and you can race in it if you want to category. Um, and uh, they had Jim Walmsley, who is the greatest ultra marathon in the world right now, I would say. Um, certainly the greatest in the United States. Some would argue that maybe he's he's not the greatest in the world, um, but uh, he uh, ran uh, a world best for 50 miles wearing the Carbon X, like literally two days after they released the shoe, um, and it was kind of a marketing thing. Again, you know, it's a marketing thing, and so so they they have him and a few other people run this little small race. Michael Wardian was one of them because he's also sponsored by Hoka One One, um, and and he ends up running a 50 mile world best in the new Carbon Xs. Um, read some reviews on the carbon x over the course of the last few days um uh some real mixed feelings people have about them um but i think it's sort of interesting and this is going to segue into the other thing i want to say that this sort of carbon plate technology 
that we've talked a lot about with the Vaporfly is now expanding out into other places. Yeah. Um, it's not just marathon racing shoes. Now it's like lightweight trainers that also have a carbon plate in them. Um, and with that in mind, New Balance is actually about to release in the next couple of weeks a new shoe called the 5280, the New Balance 5280. Now, I hate the way, by the way, that New Balance gives all their shoes numbers. Yeah, I never understand. It drives the, me insane. The numbers, like 5280, why that number? Well, so so that number is the only one that's ever made sense. That's the number of feet in a mile. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. I was like, I yeah. think feet to miles. Okay. Yeah, that's the number of feet in a mile. And, and their new carbon-plated shoe uses foam that they call fuel cell foam. And it has a carbon plate in it as well. And it's designed not for the marathon, but for the mile. Hmm. Um, and Jenny Simpson wore a prototype pair of them at the Fifth Avenue Mile a few months ago and, and won her sixth straight Fifth Avenue Mile. Um, and, and so um, they're supposed to, they, they kind of say the same thing. They're supposed to keep you efficient in the latter stages of a race. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're more like a traditional spike would be and they're, they're, they're supposed to be used more of a, a, a for these short distance races you know mile maybe 5k and that's about it um, and so kind of taking that foam carbon understanding technology and rather than applying it to the marathon applying it to you know middle distance races and short distance races instead um, like I said that's coming out in June so it hasn't been field tested yet um, you know by the masses so we'll have to see what ends up happening with that but I think that's interesting as well yeah Skechers is still kind of playing around with the idea of releasing a carbon plated shoe haven't heard a whole lot more about that they have a foam called hyperburst that people tend to love from everything I've read um, and so so will, will that be like you know their foam and, and plate combination that will be coming out this fall we'll see We'll or it's almost, it's almost like all these tech companies when they when the iPhone first came out and then they all had to rush to get their yeah. prototype out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we talked about this, you know, when we first brought up the, the Nike Vaporflies about how w- once Nike created this prototype, then everybody else could try to, to copy a lot of the same technology, which is, you know, only good for the rest of the community as we, you know, start to um, expand out. A, it means the Nike Vaporflies will ultimately get cheaper. And because there will be other competitors in the market. And it also means that hopefully, you know, that same technology won't just be limited to shoes that you run in a marathon in. Right. They can expand to the mile, right. to hopefully trainers eventually, mm-hmm. um, things of that nature. So that'll be interesting. Um, I, I look forward to it as a bit of a running shoe nerd myself. I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. The, you know, it, it's kind of interesting to see the, the different kind of politics and kind of arms race between these different yeah. shoe companies. Um, and they each kind of have. I, I've, I've read the phrase "arms race" in several places. Yeah, <laughs> the and it's carbon plate arms because, race. You know, some of them don't quite have the same arms race because maybe they're trying to create great trainers for mm. like the mass market, mm. but then they don't have any professional athletes that are signed up to for them, mm. and so they don't have anybody saying, "Hey, we need a fast racer. We have mm. great trainers, but we need a good racing shoe." Mm. Um, so I know that's been a, a few different brands um, kind of mo over the last few years. Mm. It's fascinating. I went to a running store actually last night and just kind of was trying out a bunch of different pairs. And it, it just dawned on me. When I first started running in 2002, the quality right. of running shoes right. was so much worse than it is today. Now, They're all the same. Now the shoe that you wear to walk around the grocery store is better than the shoes we were running that I was running in, in high yeah. school. Like the top dollar shoe. Yeah. Um, and, they, and they were all the same. Yeah. That, that, and that, that's the thing about it to me is that, that when you and I were in high school and in college – well, when I was in high school and college, and then when you were in high school and college, um, like all the shoes were the same, and the the the, the lasts were the same, and the the thinking behind them was the same, and oh well, Asics has gel and and um, 
uh, Nike has Air, but it's the same. Yeah, you know, and it and it, it was just basically kind of forgot about the Nike Air. So, oh, they so, were so into oh, yeah. that for like um, five years. You know, and 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 all the retro shoe geeks are still totally into it. But but I mean that's but but they're all basically the same shoe. Um, now one could then argue, well, now they're sort of reconverging around carbon plates and and some sort of really bouncy foam. Um, but but I think it's cool now that you're you, we're getting a wider array of shoes that fit a wider array of people. Um, and, and it's not just like, oh, if you're going to run, here's the shoe you have to wear. And right. here's, here's the thinking behind it. Um, Will Kramer, a couple of years ago when we interviewed him, said, said we've gotten away from this idea that sk- shoes are a prescription for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that instead, you're actually going to be, be having a shoe that works for you. You've probably seen that Adidas now has, in some stores... Um, they have 3D printers where they will print a custom, they will make a custom pair of shoes for you. And so, so they take all these measurements on your foot and then they use a 3D printer to actually create a pair of shoes for your feet. I mean, a, a custom pair of shoes, that's something that like literally only the top end pros used to get. Or it, and it used to be like, we can print the name Patrick on your yeah. shoes. Like, <laughs> yeah. that was your custom, yeah. but it's the exact right. same model. Right, yeah. Um, uh, we can make them blue or gray. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's phenomenal to see um, how much of an, how many how many advances we've seen in, in the, the shoe technology. And like I said, it's not it hasn't just affected us as runners. It's affected, like, my parents who wear it walking around the grocery store, like right. I said, who, right. you know, like my mom has severe um, leg issues from a car accident she was in or, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal to see. And, and for those of you who maybe have never had um, issues with, with your feet or your knees, et cetera, it's amazing how when you get a, a good pair of shoe versus kind of walking around and like the Agreed. dress shoes that you, you used yeah. to have to wear to work, yeah. it is, I mean, all of a sudden the back pain goes away, all of a sudden the knee pain goes away. It's yeah. uh, pretty remarkable how much of an effect it actually has on our day-to-day lives. For sure. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, that's a lot of news, man. It is. Heavy week. <laughs> this this is what this is what happens when Patrick and I only meet up and actually talk about it. So yeah. We I'll don't pro- have our two hour runs to nerd out with that's each other right. and then recap what yeah, we've talked right. about on the run. So so, so in instead we get these fishbowl podcasts where we get to nerd out and all of you get to listen to it. Um so yeah, drop us a line and let us know whether you're okay with that. Uh let's talk quickly about some research here. Mm-hmm. So because we do want to make sure we include that. I know that you have some some pretty applicable research and mine's a little bit more theoretical, but maybe it has application. So do you want to go first or me? I'll go first because my research makes me sad, and I don't want to end on a sad note. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so my research is on the effect that caffeine has on performance, and we know that caffeine generally boosts performance. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this research had essentially found that you know to really full the f- feel the full benefit of caffeine before you race, mm-hmm. you have to first swear it off. Okay. For- and yeah, I have to say, I do that, so that's good to hear. <laughs> that's good news say, for me. <laughs> my heart broke a little because I am a pretty avid coffee drinker. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what what you're saying is that you have to stop drinking. You have to so you have to deacclimate. Mm-hmm. You, you have to stop drinking caffeine, or you have to wean yourself off of caffeine for a couple of weeks prior to actually using it in a race, in order that you'll get the jolt from it during the race. So we don't know how long you need to swear it off. Okay. So that's what we'll get into. Okay. So. Um, it's a fairly common routine, you know, among endurance athletes, um, to, you know, swear off caffeine, you know, lightly or so for about a week or usually about a week before a big race. I mean, even Des Linden, who, I mean, owns her own coffee company, (laughs) has advocated for 
you know, soaring off coffee the week before a race. Actually, to, to just to, to fact check you, I think that she, because it was with Ben True, I Correct. think that they have parted ways. Uh, I, th- I think, I think uh, for whatever reason, Des Lennon and Ben True have decided that they're not going to be in a business venture anymore. Oh, gotcha. I'll, I'll double check that here in a second. Go ahead. Keep okay. going. Well, right now there's a bit of a gap in the research um, in terms of the, you know, the supposed benefits of the um, abstention of ca- from caffeine and the actual boost that you receive. So a number of studies have looked for an effect, but none have really been particularly convincing. Um, about two years ago, there was a study that looked at 40 well-trained cyclists and found no difference in the size of the boost that the riders got from caffeine, whether they were low, medium, or high caffeine consumers normally. Does okay. that make sense? So yeah. if you just look at the general intake of caffeine, are you drink three cups, two cups, one cup of coffee, there's not too much difference so to speak I, I like how you go immediately to the flaws of the study but um it's what i do i mean this this made me sad so i become negative patrick here um so this this study was actually conducted by a team of researchers in spain uh, and they put a group of 11 volunteers now that's to be noted is only 11 volunteers all right okay i think that's why because they add they had to ask coffee drinkers to abstain and people like forget it i don't care if you give me a hundred dollars i'm not giving up that coffee what was it Patrick Henry said? Give me coffee or give me death? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Something like that? Coffee, liberty, same thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they found a group of 11 volunteers to go through a 20-day, um, a pair of 20-day protocols. And um, I want to make sure I get this right, so I'm going to take it a little slow here. But all the volunteers were normally light caffeine users. So they consumed about um, 50 milligrams a day of caffeine, which is less than a cup of coffee per day oh yeah i mean it's more like half a cup or a third of a cup of coffee just to give you an idea um it's it's slightly more than a single coca-cola okay gotcha so for the first 20-day protocol they took a daily pill containing the standard dose of caffeine used by athletes for performance enhancements okay and that that equates to be about 200 milligrams or roughly equal to a cup of coffee Mm -hmm. okay so that was the first one um for the other 20-day protocol they were given a daily placebo okay pretty basic standard right 20 day period with caffeine pill 20 day with placebo i feel like you would know the difference but keep uh, going <laughs> i would definitely know the difference. <laughs> keep um, before and after the study and um three times a week during the study they completed a vo2 max test to exhaustion and a 15 second all-out sprint on an exercise bike or what george darden would call the last mile of the <laughs> flying pig half marathon um, now this allowed them to track exactly how the performance, you know, edge from caffeine change as they gradually got used to taking the caffeine day to day. Because like I said, they took people that were having less than a cup of coffee a day mm-hmm. and then gave them the 200 milligram pill on a daily basis. Right. Okay. Um, now what they found, and I'll just kind of jump to the conclusions here without getting into the specific numbers, was that they did get a big boost from caffeine in the first few days. Okay. So okay, so that's good. Then it starts to taper off. But it never really gets to zero. So okay. at the end of the period, they still got a boost from the caffeine, but it's significantly less than what they got on day one, day two, day three. Um, so based on these results, you might figure that. And they're and they're only and so so real quick on the on the process, they're they're doing that the, they're doing that testing every single day. Let me back up and make sure I get this right, because because you're correct that it's to um three times a week three times a week okay yeah um and so so they are able to recover from it then that was one thing that i had to ask about um and so so yeah keep going um let's see here where was it so they did get a boost initially and then it starts to wear off right 
Um, oh, and that's the other question I had. So the only the only effect they're measuring from the caffeine is on is that performance effect, right? Correct. They're not be- measuring like like any metabolic things or like um, like body fat or anything else like that, right? Correct. Okay, keep going. Right. And so the basic rule is or like or like mental focus throughout the course of the rest of the day or anything else like that. Correct. Okay, so keep going. Day one through five, or day one, it's at its peak. It it ta- it drops off for days one through six, excuse me, uh-huh. and then it levels off after about day six, day seven. Okay. Okay. Um, but it never really goes away. So, the kind of general conclusion is, you know, when you when you have caffeine every day, you know, maybe you lose a little bit of that edge. So, kind of a mixed blessing for us coffee drinkers such as myself because it it suggests that a pre-race caffeine detox, although it may be brutally painful and you know bring me to tears on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, it might actually be worthwhile for trying to chase a PR. Okay. Yeah, right. Now there's still a lot that goes into this. First of all, there's only 11 people studying. Right. Uh, second of all, we have no idea how long you would actually need to swear off the caffeine okay. to go back to those peak levels. So that would be mm-hmm. another big piece of uh, research that would need to, um, we would need to, to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course there are questions about how much caffeine would you need once you come back? Right. Um, could you counteract this by jumping from 200 milligrams to 400 milligrams of mm-hmm. caffeine? Mm-hmm. Which obviously that gets problematic when you start measuring your caffeine yeah. intake or coffee intake by the pot, not by the cup. That, and and, that, and that's important too. I had a I have a friend um, who who did a caffeine detox because frankly he saw me doing it. Now we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But um, and and he said it didn't work for me. I said, well, tell me about it and. He went from a two-week caffeine detox, and on race day, he drank and ate, like, all the caffeine. Yeah. Um, and and he was like, yeah, it didn't work. It was terrible. I was jittery and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, yeah, well, you went from zero to, like, he literally took in, like, 1,000 uh, grams of caffeine. And it's, wow. it's, it's, it's like, that's And that's, too like, much. five black cups of coffee yeah, a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or in one moment. Yeah, almost. yeah. I mean, and, and I, was like, I was like, okay, you kind of blew that. Like, yeah. you don't go from zero to 1,000. Uh, but anyway, keep going. Well, the other, I was gonna say another hard part about the the caffeine detox is, for most of us, like, if I were to to do the caffeine detox, it might affect how I perform at work. Right. It might affect my cognitive functioning right. at work. Right. Which most of us can't just say, all right, for the next two weeks, I'm gonna be a worthless waste of human flesh. Right. You know. Right. I can't cut my intelligence in half. I can't go from a <laughs> IQ of four to two. Okay. I need every boost I can get on yeah. a daily basis. And it and it can be painful. I um I so I used to do this. I don't I I didn't do it actually for flying pig. Mm-hmm. Um. I but I but I used to about two weeks out I would start cutting it. Okay. And then I would get down to where it was completely cut out by about four, four or five days out. Okay. Um, and then I would use I would drink tea like I would normally would in the morning. And then I would use caffeinated gels during the race. Um, and I felt like that worked for me. Um, I didn't do it this time because the gels that I was going to be using weren't caffeinated. I, I used Martin gels. And Martin has one flavor, no caffeine. Um, and uh, because of that, I said, all right, well, I'm, I'm, I don't need to cut out caffeine because I'm not going to be looking for a caffeine booster in the race. And so I just didn't do it this time. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, Interestingly enough, you know, I ran just fine, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, yeah, I I do think that it has helped me in the past when I've used caffeinated gels, because I mean, if you if you are accustomed to taking in 500 milligrams of caffeine um, on a daily basis, and then you get up during the race, and then you take 500 milligrams throughout the course of the day during the race, 
I don't think that's really going to give you a boost. I think it's right. going to, I think it's probably going to help you not have like a caffeine crash, but I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to really going to help you all that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I have many, I have many thoughts or many questions then since you have actually successfully done it. So I've only done a caffeine detox like twice mm-hmm. and it actually was not for racing. It was for other um, reasons. Like I was taking a medicine that was a steroid. And so he said, look, you need to cut out caffeine okay. or something to, to kind of keep your heart from, you know, exploding. exploding. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember it was pretty painful the first week or so. Yeah. And then the second week, it wasn't so much physically painful as much as I was having to constantly remind myself not to oh, okay. walk to the coffee pot. It was yeah. like, it was almost like it took away my mental you, break. Yeah. The you day. Had muscle memory of walking to the coffee pot. You know, your body's walking there by itself. Right. Um, yeah. No, I, so a part, so on that, on that note, a part of it I think is, is switching to decaf. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's so. So when I a lot of times when I would cut out because I like getting up in the morning and moseying around and drinking a few cups of tea. Yeah, like I like that. Um, it's just something that I find very calming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, switching to decaf so I could still have that ritual. That was part of it. Um, but yeah, you talk about being painful. Yeah, it feels like a hangover um, when you have sort of a caffeine detox. And I, I've noticed that um, I have to be careful in my day to day life with how much caffeine I drink. Because if I drink 200 milligrams of caffeine on a, on a, in a particular day, which is a lot for me, I usually drink around about 120 or 130. That's pretty low. That's pretty um, good. Yeah. And so if I drink 200 in a day, if the next day I drink a normal level, or if I drink like maybe only 100 the next day, I'll actually feel it by the end of the day. I'll actually feel hungover by the end of the day. I'll get a caffeine withdrawal. Really? Yeah. It, so, it's so I'm, that I'm, quick for you? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to it. And so I think to your point about there was only 11 people in this study, I think people have varying sensitivities to caffeine. Um, and I think I'm very sensitive to caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons, and I think I recognize that, and that's the reason why in the past I've detoxed and then used it during a race and have had successful races. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that I'm sensitive to it and, and it would give me, in fact, a boost. But I think, I don't think everybody's as sensitive. And as a result, I, they might I would not get say a boost. too, you could detox. You were only fully detoxed for like five days, if I remember correctly. Yeah. You were decaf or, or cut it down for a week or so. And right. then, as opposed to this study where they were detoxing for 20 whole days. Yeah, that'd be tough. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'll tell you too, it's interesting. You, you talk, you, you mentioned like the different habits. So, you know, I, I've worked in consulting, so that means I've jumped to different offices, like mm-hmm. different actual physical workspaces and yeah. different office buildings, right. you know, 10 or 11 times in the last five, six years. And I recently went to a building where we had a Keurig. And oh, okay. I had never been in a spot where you had a, a coffee pot or, or Keurig. And I got to say, when you can just get up and make a cup of coffee on the company's dime, I noticed my <laughs> my intake yeah. went up. Dra- I mean, it, went, it was an extra 6 to 12 ounces a day yeah. of, co- of black coffee. Yeah. And I've definitely noticed that all of a sudden now I, I need more to, to get oh, yeah. the same boost. And it's yeah. a little frightening. Yeah. I shouldn't say frightening. That's a it's little more dramatic. Trouble. But it's a, yeah. uh, eye-opening. Yeah. I, I, had a, I had a conversation one time with an athlete that I coach who uh, – um, he had said, he had said to me, I think I need to cut down on my coffee consumption. And I, and I wrote back and I said, you really should be trying to, to, to drink less than 200 milligrams a day. And I said, that's essentially like two cups of black coffee and da, da, da. And he wrote back, yeah, I'm drinking more than that. 
<laughs> yeah. And and I what I took from that was he's drinking a lot more than yeah. that. He was drinking like coffee. He was probably drinking two thousand milligrams. Right. Um and so so yeah. Um anyway, I, I I do think it's an interesting study. I think it's worth considering. I do think also caffeine does more for you than I mean, and you kind of alluded to this. Caffeine does more for you than than just the mental benefits in a race. It actually helps you synthesize fat and, and other things mm-hmm. like that. Um and I'll mention one kind of quick thing and then I'll talk about my piece of research. I read a recent piece of of um a recent article that was talking about the different types of caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was saying that, and, and in fact, caffeine is sort of a catch-all term for different types of stimulants. Um, but it was saying that the caffeine in Coca-Cola is is quick, but it doesn't last long. The hmm. caffeine in tea and coffee is less quick, but it lasts a little bit longer. And the coffee in chocolate is is the slowest to cause a reaction but it lasts the longest that's very interesting and so so if you actually combine your caffeine sources in different ways you can get both a quick hit and a sustained caffeine boost Mm -hmm. so something else to consider as well well that's part of the reason why we we crave sweets a lot of time at the end of a long work day because our our brain is essentially craving that boost right on yeah another thing too is it should be noted a big reason why Starbucks coffee is so good, it makes you feel so good, mm-hmm. it's got three times the caffeine yeah. as a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Yeah. So there is, yeah. that's that's a big difference. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I didn't know it had three times as much as Dunkin' Donuts. I know it had three times as much as the one you might make in your house, but, yeah. That might have been it, but I think, it, I, I'm pretty sure it was just your reg, your average, because I was looking yeah. at a comparison of the different brands. Right. Or maybe been McDonald's, but it, the, the long story short is, going to like the gas station, the quick trip and getting a cup of coffee, there's a reason it doesn't feel as good or taste as good as the as Starbucks. Starbucks. Yeah. yeah, I could, I, I, I buy that. Yeah, and 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 certainly, uh, there and there's ways to manipulate it as well. The longer you steep your tea bag, the more caffeine is going to be in your tea. Mm-hmm. Um, the longer the the longer that that coffee is roasted, the more caffeine comes out of it, which I think is ironic. Which is why Starbucks uh, has so many because they they roast them for the longest time. So so anyway, the another one interesting sorry thing is no oh, yeah. I also wonder too, like let's say let's say you need two hundred milligrams a day to be like a functioning mm-hmm. adult, mm-hmm. and then you you detox for let's say twenty days since that's how long the study is. I wonder how long it takes to get back up to that two hundred milligram threshold to where right. you need that much caffeine. I don't know. So yeah. interesting stuff. It could be very quick. For me, it would be very quick. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, I don't know. Um, all right, let's switch gears. Last piece of research here. Um, let's talk about one that came out in Frontiers of Physiology. Uh, at the end of last year, it was reported in the New York Times, and I read it a few months ago and kind of made a mental note that I wanted to mention this piece of research. And then, interestingly enough, um, a friend of the podcast uh, put it on my Facebook wall and said, hey, you ought to talk about this on the podcast. So it's funny you say that because I was thinking about doing it anyway. <laughs> um, but anyway, it was a bunch of researchers at the University of Gulf in Canada. Um, they released something last year... Uh, like I said, it was in Frontiers in Physiology called Left Ventricular Structure and Function in Elite Swimmers and Runners. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically looked at the differences in the structure of the heart between uh, national class swimmers and national class runners. Um, so they took 16 of each of them, 16 or 16 men, 16 women, national team members, and then they had them not exercise for 12 hours uh, before they actually studied the structure and the way that their heart actually worked. Um, and the reason why they took national team members, by the way, is because they figured that national team members had been doing the sport long enough, either swimming or running long enough, that 
the sport had a profound impact on their physiology. Yeah. If you had somebody that just started swimming like last month, well, maybe the sport hadn't really had enough time to, to right. really impact the structure of their hearts. Right. Um, whereas, you know, in this one, yeah, clearly it has had enough time, right? right. So, so they took these national team members. Now, quick background here. In well-trained athletes, the left ventricle of the heart tends to start filling up with blood earlier. Okay. Um, and then when your heart kind of twists every time it beats um, to eject the blood out of the ventricles and then spread it out through the rest of your body, mm-hmm. in well-trained athletes, it twists more powerfully. Okay. So, 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 it, so it beats harder, if you will. Okay. Um, and so it takes in blood earlier and it twists more powerfully. And they found with all 32 of the people that they looked at, and the swimmers and the runners, um, that, that it filled earlier and it twisted harder. It twisted, it bit, it beat harder in order to eject that blood out, which is an indication of, of heart strength, um, which is a positive thing. It's good cardiovascular health, right? Um, but what they found in the study is that these effects, the early filling and the powerful twisting of the heart, the powerful ejection of the blood from the heart, were amplified in runners. So runners' hearts tended to fill even earlier than swimmers did. And again, these are national class people, um, and it tended to twist even more powerfully than it did for the swimmers. Um, now, the theory behind this, at least the, the the theory why they thought this was, was because runners have to overcome gravity in order to have their blood pumping throughout the course of their body, whereas swimmers, because they're horizontal in their competitions and in their training, um, the blood doesn't have to overcome gravity. And so, so runners' hearts, in other words, have to work harder than swimmers' hearts do in order to circulate the blood throughout the body at a very high rate when they're training and competing, right? Yeah. Um, and so kind of an interesting thing, right? Interesting to see that, that you have these two sports that people have done them for years and years and years, and their hearts, as a result, have changed structure in different fashions based on the demands of the sport, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so... Um, the takeaway, obviously, is that, wow, our hearts are really, really finely tuned. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's not just overall heart health. It's not just overall cardiovascular health. I mean, your heart responds very sensitively and very specifically to the demands that you're giving it, right? Um, to what it is you're demanding of it. Um, and because swimmers and runners demand two different things in their heart, the heart adjusts and their hearts look different from one another right mm-hmm. um so so kind of incredible um the researchers actually pondered whether this means that swimmers should do some running that hey maybe if you're looking at an advantage for other swimmers maybe you do some running and that'll make your heart more powerful and that might be the thing that gives you that extra one hundredth of a second that could be the difference between a gold medal and a fourth place mm-hmm. right um i looking at it wondered what it meant for different types of running and training yeah. And so, so if your heart is this sensitive, um, that probably suggests that, that if you do a whole bunch of short, fast runs, it's going to affect your heart or it's going to change the structure of your heart in a way that's different from if you do longer, steadier runs, right? Um, and so, so given that, that the heart's so sensitive to these different types of stimulus, what does that actually mean for our, for our training and our racing? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Do you see? Do you understand what my question is? Do you understand yeah, my point? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, we always talk about how okay, so you need to run short, fast stuff, even if you're getting ready for this long, steady race. But what this suggests is that maybe, at least from a cardiovascular place, maybe that's not so. Because maybe doing the short, fast stuff structures your heart in a particular way that is not necessarily suitable for the long, steady stuff. 
Or, or, or maybe it makes it stronger and that it, that applies in the long study. So, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah, maybe, maybe, and we don't know the answer. We're just you know speculating here. Maybe it's almost like asking the swimmers to run, mm-hmm. where by doing the the intervals, that's the real. That's why the intervals yeah. are so helpful to a marathoner is because yeah. it's the only way to really train your heart to pump with intensity, right? Any kind of um, you know increase the the pressure of each pump and the pressure of each right. twist, so to speak, right. as, as you said. Um, which helps which helps you at every race distance correct yeah and i like that solution better (laughs) yeah because there's almost no way to train that via long steady runs Mm because your 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 muscles and your muscular skeletal system will almost die out before Mm -hmm. you can actually train your heart Mm -hmm. on the easy runs right um you i mean you'll need that same heart power in the actual race when you're Mm -hmm. racing at that level of intensity Mm -hmm. but in order to do easy runs day in and day out you have to do it slow enough to where you're not training your heart, you know, the same way you that, are with yeah, with that, that that super high end heart, thing. right? Yeah, so that I mean, it, that'd be fascinating if that <coughs> ends up being why the intervals are so helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've said many times before, it's still, uh, you know, in terms of coaching and training, it's still all just one big educated guess. Mm-hmm. As as we continue to learn more about, you know, why you know when Lydiard had his you know runners run 100 miles a week, it was so successful, and why. Bowerman's intervals ended up being such an integral part of of training moving forward. So, you know, we're, we're kind of keep going from knowing what works to knowing why it works. Mm-hmm. And this could certainly offer a little bit of yeah. perspective yeah. in terms of what are the questions we need to ask to have a better understanding yeah. of why what we do works. We the the I, I agree with you. The only thing I'll add to that is to say that we do still have to be careful though to make sure that we're using science in the proper way. That we don't say, oh well this science proves that the way that I've always done things is right, so I'm gonna keep on doing the same way. That that we have yeah, to th- we, that's we, never a winning strategy. Yeah, right. That, right. That, that we, we we have to approach it with an open mind. We we, we, we shouldn't look for science to just reify the, the things that we want to do anyway. We should be looking for science to inform potentially new ways and better ways of doing things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I I think that's my takeaway from it as well. That the the short hard stuff, the reason why it's so good for marathons, or at least one of the reasons why it's so good for marathoners and even for ultra marathoners, um, is is because it promotes a stronger heart, which will help you at any distance, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that's it. But I do. I need to keep mulling it over because I, I want to make sure that I'm not letting my bias sink into that takeaway. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Yeah, very good. Um, well, I think that covers us, man. Mm-hmm. Good podcast again. I enjoyed talking with you. Always good having you back here. Lots of news, important stuff, and some pretty interesting pieces of research, too. Absolutely. It was fun. I'm going right. to have a cup of coffee. I'm getting a little sleepy <laughs> from this long uh, podcast you, you, here. You've been decoxing for the past hour and 20 minutes, and so now you need some more coffee. Very good. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate you joining us. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. 
Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.